There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F*** that. We don't got time for that. All right, let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320-KLWN. Did you hear that? All that sports gambling stuff, and yet Kansas still not passing it. I remember they tried to pass the sports betting bill, and I think they tried to attach like just stuff that had nothing to do with sports gambling onto the bill. It's so dumb. Please, just pass it. Let's have legal sports betting in Kansas. Right now, you got to go up to, like, Iowa is your nearest spot. I actually did that a couple weeks ago. That's, you know, how you hit the uh, KU football over one and a half wins bandwagon. And I'm glad to say that that bet is still alive. We're still alive because if KU would have lost to South Dakota, I mean, it's still possible, right? Like, the year KU lost to Nichols State, they still won three games. But you played Central Michigan in the non-con. You don't really have a Central Michigan type of opponent in the non-con this year. Like Coastal Carolina in the AP poll today is ranked 17th. They're favored by 25 and a half. And then Duke lost lost to Charlotte. So maybe that one's closer to that. Charlotte's still a Division One team in the Sun Belt. Um, or maybe they're the Conference USA. I don't even know. Duke shouldn't have lost the game. So that'll actually be a barn burner between KU and, and uh, Duke. But... It's still live. It feels alive. If you'd have lost that game, it would have felt like you're trending toward a winless season once again. I mean, it's your first win in over 600 days. As far as what happened in the game, I think you would have liked it to be a little bit more of a comfortable win at the end. Weren't thinking that KU was going to have to convert a late fourth down in the fourth quarter on a game-winning touchdown drive to try to win the game, but it happened and you found a way to win and that's what matters most. I said it before. Just find a way to win any way you can because that has such an impact 
on the culture. And Andy Kotelnicki talked about it. it's a lot easier to institute culture when there's not games being played. And specifically in that reference, it's talking about losing games. You know, it's going to be one thing if you lose to Oklahoma. It's another thing you lose this first game to an FCS opponent, but you found a way to win. It's all that matters. Defense was good. Offense was bad. There. All right. Got everything out of the way. That's pretty much good enough for the show today. Uh, defense gave up 263 yards in the game total. That is the least a KU defense has allowed in a game since 2016 when they did so against that horrible Rhode Island team. Uh, the offense for KU, though, left a lot to be desired. 245 total yards for the KU offense, which was most notably had a bad day with the rushing attack. 41 carries for 82 yards equals out to be two yards a carry. If you would have told me the offense would struggle so much, I think everyone would have just thought, and myself included, that, okay, well, you couldn't figure out the quarterback position. And maybe the offensive line continued to have troubles, which it did in one extent. Like, they were they were fine pass blocking. They struggled run blocking. But you could have seen that because the offensive line had struggled a season ago. And it was the first game of the year. A lot of times the offensive line takes longer to develop and work together than other positions. So you could have seen the offensive line. You probably would have expected if the offense struggled, it was, oh, no, the quarterback's thrown a couple interceptions. They can't figure out the spot. That wasn't the case. It was the run game. Jason Bean wound up having a pretty good game. I mean, you look at, like, the total QBR wasn't very good for Bean. You look at the yards per attempt, you know, better than anything you got last year, but still not, like, amazing. But it was solid. It was 17 of 26, 163 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, 15 carries for 54 yards on the ground. If he does that every game, that is a huge win with what you got at the quarterback this season, in my opinion. And yes, you know, Bean was not the perfect quarterback. He left some things on the table. He didn't appear to be going through, you know, two, three, four guys in his progressions to dump it off. It seems like it was maybe, hey, I'll look at one guy, maybe two, then I'm taking off. And there were a few missed throws, a few inaccurate balls. But overall, I think he was solid. And he does, in my opinion, have the potential to be that molded ball of clay in the next year or two to be successful for this offense. Not just this year, but in years ahead. It should obviously help him as well in the passing game. Uh, Mason Fairchild, LJ Arnold, they might be really emerging on the outside. Same for Trevor Wilson. Fairchild had four grabs, 58 yards. Arnold, three for 33, the two scores, including the game winner. Even Trevor Wilson, five grabs for 50 yards. He's going to stay on the field. His speed gives him the ability to beat you deep. The ability to hit you on a bubble screen. He was actually doing it with like shorter routes in the game, but he actually ended up as the best run blocking player Trevor Wilson did of any KU player on Friday. Uh, but Arnold specifically, and we'll talk more about this later in the show, he has the body and potential to be a true Big 12 number one. And to me, that changes the way we'd view things pretty notably in the receiver room if he does turn into that guy. Same, I guess, with Trevor Wilson, who has the speed to do just that. But Bean's mobility was huge. And yes, the offensive line actually graded okay in pass blocking. Pretty good, actually, in pass blocking, especially compared to the run blocking. But I'm sure it definitely helped that you have a quarterback who has so much speed and can use his legs so much. I'm sure that would have helped last year a little bit with how much the offensive line struggled. Honestly, probably with how bad it was last year, it wouldn't have mattered that much, but it's definitely a positive to have if you're having to run around for your life back there. But the main reason they won that game, 
Jason Bean did come up clutch, and the offense did figure it out that last drive. But even then, you only had 10 points up until that point on an, on an FCS opponent. And the main reason you win that game is because of the defense. It was just strong really all night. There was still maybe a few too many times that you'd like with an FCS opponent where South Dakota dropped back Carson Camp and felt like he was in the pocket for seven seconds before he got touched. Um, there were some huge running lanes like the Tice kid, the the running back for South Dakota, breaking off that long rushing touchdown, giving the 14-10 lead. And you'd like to see more than four tackles for loss by KU. You know, I mentioned last year, like KU, when they were playing these teams, the other teams were getting like 12 tackles for loss in a game. So you would like to see a little bit more of that. But the defense won them the game. And in the end, you suppress them to 14 points. I said before the game, this defense should be enough to hold South Dakota to under 20 points. And if you hold an FCS opponent under 20 points, you should win that game. Well, KU didn't score 20 points, so it almost ended up not being that way. But they did their job. You held them to 14 points, even though you did allow the kind of the late comeback with how much the offense struggled. You did enough in that game that if the offense would have performed well, you would have been going into that fourth quarter with, I don't know what, KU up three touchdowns, four scores, and you would have had to worry about anything late in the game. Now, game management-wise, this was something that I really had an eye on. Obviously, anytime you have a new coaching staff, you're going to be watching for it, right? What is this staff bringing that the other guys aren't? And you would think there's huge room to grow for KU from what they've had in the past, just in far of game as far as the game management goes to what they're going to get now under Lance Leipold. I thought the the timeout usage was pretty poor, and maybe it's unfair to judge that in week one for any season. It probably is because, you know, even a coach who, like the Chiefs are probably going to burn a couple bad timeouts in week one just because it's week one. But that doesn't mean I, I don't think like Patrick Mahomes or Andy Reid or doing a bad job with game management necessarily. Sometimes in week one, you do have more to deal with. But it almost cost KU late. They were going into that fourth and ten on that last drive where they ended up scoring a touchdown and winning it. If they didn't get that first down, they were in deep trouble. I believe at the time they went for the fourth down, there's maybe like three minutes, two and a half minutes left. They would have been out of timeouts. So they maybe could have made a stop from there and got the ball back with seconds left. But it wouldn't have been much. And that definitely hurts you. Now, you also kind of had to deal with, hey, we're almost out of timeouts, and you have the challenge play on the fourth down that you decided not to challenge on the QB sneak where it looked like you clearly got it. But maybe you couldn't challenge it. Maybe it was too hard to tell on replay that you were worried. But then why'd you spend the other timeouts if you weren't worried about that? So I, I don't know where to sit on that just because KU has had struggles in previous regimes, previous staffs with the poor use of timeouts, and it has cost them, and it almost cost KU on Friday. But again, I almost want to chalk that more up to it's week one, then it's KU just mismanaged their timeouts. And I think that's where I want to go with that. Um, didn't have a ton of penalties. There were some moments of sloppy play for KU. Uh, the biggest thing that I wondered about was I, I just didn't understand the continuance to run the ball every play. Like, I get it, KU, it's their first game of the year. You want to establish the run. You're working on some things against another team for the first time. At some point in that game, you got to realize you're averaging two yards a carry and that Jason Bean is having more success on the offensive side of the ball than your running game and say, you know what, we're going to open it up a little bit. 
and that never happened, maybe they're keeping some things in the playbook for this week against Coastal Carolina, and they didn't want to expose anything until they absolutely had to there down the stretch when they had to get into the late two-minute drive on Friday night. But that was a little perplexing, and, and I'm sure, you know, ideally you get the running game going and you don't have to worry about that. And there were adjustments made, so I don't want to make it sound like they just were stubborn and, and wanting to do everything, but it felt like that could have been something that was improved with over the course of that first game. But overall, it took South Dakota shooting itself in the foot a little bit, and you basically getting a bit of fortune. The missed field goal, the targeting call, South Dakota going for it on a fourth down instead of a field goal and getting stuffed, and that would have made it 17-10, hypothetically going into your last drive, where you would have been sending it to overtime, not winning the game straight. You needed a few breaks to win this game, and you got them. And that may sound negative, but I actually think that's a positive. And here's why. You found a win, and that's all that matters for this program. They have been so hard to come by. And I'll say this. You could also argue that, you know, KU should have never been in that late situation if not for that atrocious spot on the fourth down by the officiating crew. So that's not fortunate. But all those other things, the missed field goal, the not because if they make that field goal the first one then the second time where they go for it and get stuffed they probably just kick the field goal there I don't know the the targeting call that keeps your drive alive on the fourth down all those things I don't know maybe if you get that fourth down conversion then that stuff doesn't matter as much but all that stuff made you a little fortunate but most importantly is that in the end the win is a win for a program that those haven't been easy to come by. And that's very helpful for the culture Leipold and his staff are trying to impose. And while you could say they were a bit fortunate at times with all those things, with the other team messing up, sometimes it just boils down to not shooting yourself in the foot as much as the opponent's. And sometimes that is enough to win. You know, we want to act like all the time in matchups it comes down to, well, this team played better than that team. And this team's better than that team because they make more positive plays. But sometimes part of being bad, quote-unquote, or being worse than the other person isn't that they're making more explosive plays than you. It's that you're making bad plays more often. So you get in this mindset as fans to say, well, if we would have done, if we would have just, you know, not through that interception, we could have won the game. But you did throw the interception. And that's what made you worse. That's what distinguished you as worse in that game. So while KU might have been fortunate in a few different ways, sometimes not shooting yourself in the foot as much as the opponents is enough to win. And how often has that been the case for KU? Because usually they're the team who loses it for themselves, not the other way around. This was different than the endless cycle you seem to be on by losing these games to FCS teams. And that's improvement. And not going to lie, you know, you do get a little bit of schadenfreude with other schools struggling to FCS teams. Number 20, Washington lost to Montana. Iowa State almost lost to Northern Iowa. 
UConn lost by 10 at home to Holy Cross. South Dakota State crushed Colorado State Friday night. Oklahoma State only beat Missouri State 23-16. to Hell, Kansas State a few years ago played South Dakota and only beat them by three points, and that Kansas State team went bowling. Just find a way to win. And I'll say this too, this team is going to get better. I would even say exponentially better considering where they were at the start with less time for the coaching staff who took over so late. And so if you think about it, every day with the new staff for these KU players, to me, it, it, it should add more to the development and scheme fit of the players than another school in the same scheme, right? Because what's one day with the staff of 30 that you spent, it's going to be a higher incremental percentage increase than if you spent, hey, this is a day of the 200 days that I've spent with the staff. So there is a lot of room to grow for this team. Now, is that even enough to overcome some of the shortcomings? Maybe not. And maybe the gap is too large this year and that the gap you're making up is just to get to that competitive level this year. But the team we're going to see for KU in a month, it's going to be a lot better in many different facets. From line play to executing the base plays to running the football, all that stuff. So the question from here is this, because you did your job, you found a way to win. Check mark on week one. Doesn't matter how it looked. Now, obviously it does from an improvement standpoint and working forward for future weeks, but just for that week specifically, you did what you needed. Question ahead, how much better can that offensive line get? How much better can the running game get? Because if they can get better, You showed some nice flashes at quarterback. You showed some nice flashes at receiver and on defense. But if those aspects, the running game, the offensive line, if that doesn't improve with how rough that was on Friday, this is probably closer to a one-win team. Whereas if those things do improve, you can't just judge it as, hey, you only beat an FCS team by three because there are different ways to look at that. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KU Sports, joins us in about 20 minutes from right now. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us at 440. Hawk Talk also after RCST today at 6 o'clock right here on KLWN. About 20 till 4, this is Rock Jock Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joins us now on the show. There were around 26,000 people, give or take, in attendance to the game on Friday, Matt. What do you think the high point will be this season? Ooh, wow. Um, gosh, I don't even know, Derek. That's uh, I'm going to say it's probably right there. I mean, you know, I think they would have to get a win on on Friday, and and uh, in order for that to be the case, or at least be competitive, and and then if that were to happen, then you might get a bigger crowd for that Baylor game on the 18th, which is on a Saturday. So there's a chance there. So I'll say it goes a little higher. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say they're going to win this week, but. I think there's enough people that are wanting to buy into the Lance Leipold era 
that if they just show decently well at Coastal Carolina, there'll be some people that want to come out there on Saturday the 18th at 2.30 and go watch some football and have some fun and not have high school football in the way. So I'll say, I'll say it'll be a little higher than that. Let's say they get to 31 one time this year. Okay. I would think the Kansas State game, just by nature of, you know, you have fans from both sides coming in, will be the most. But obviously I was, I was hoping you didn't answer that way because of that reason, just in terms of the KU fans. Uh, okay. Uh, so what do you think is more likely? We see a sold-out KU this year in any game. I'll even give you the Kansas State game. Or we see Kansas pull the upset this Friday. Oh my gosh! You you did not prepare me at all for this. <laughs> um, these are just coming out firing at me. I hope you yeah. had a, a good Labor Day weekend to relax because now I there's no more relaxing. Too much, apparently, <laughs> um, the question is: sold out Memorial Stadium or KU wins Friday? Yes. Oh, they kind of go hand in hand, don't they? If you if you if you want to say they're going to win Friday is likely, then then maybe that ends up leading to a, a sellout down the road. I mean, shoot, I if, they, say, if they win Friday and then they beat Duke, they might be receiving votes. Wow. Easy now. Easy now. <laughs> um, I'm going to say it's more likely that they will win Friday than they will sell wow. out this season. Um, I, you know, like I said, I'm not ready to pick them to win that game by any means, but I still do believe – that as good as Coastal's been over the last few years, and obviously they've had KU's numbers, this is still a this is still a Power Five program that is that is matching up with a team that that you know hasn't been on that level um, for for nearly as long. Obviously, they've had a heck of a run the last few years, and they have a uh, pretty deep and pretty talented and pretty experienced team this year. So there's 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 a reason that that line is 27 or you know, trending down, but it's still 24 and a half or 25 um, in favor of Coastal Carolina. But, um, but you know, there's, I don't know. I think, I think if you go in there and you play a mistake-free football game and you don't beat yourself and, you, you, you know, you, you compete, you give yourself a chance to win, it doesn't mean you're going to. You're probably still not as good. You obviously don't have the continuity and the familiarity and all those things that Coastal Carolina has going for for it and has had going for it over the last couple of years. But, I mean, you know, there's there's a little bit of human nature at play here too, right? I mean, like, it was pretty fun for Coastal Carolina a couple of years back when they when they came in here and they won 12-7, to and that was their first ever Power 5 victory for the program. And, you know, they were that Appalachian State underdog story that was just great, and they were milking that for all it's worth. And then they come back last year and – walk in here and whip KU and show that, you know, well, we're just better than you is the deal. You know, that's, this isn't even really that big of an upset, but we still can't pretend that it's not exciting. You know, we have to take this as, as something that means a lot to our program. And, and it did, and they celebrated the heck out of it. But now does, does Kansas coming to town even get them excited anymore? I mean, do you, if you're in their shoes, do you think, well, we really got to be up for this one. Or do you just think, well, we kind of own these guys. We show up, we'll win. I mean, I, you know, who knows? I don't know anything about their coach or their, their preparation or any of that. Um, I would assume that they haven't got to this level by being complacent and lazy and things of that nature. So I don't think that's what they'll do. But, again, human nature is 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 probably somewhat in play. And you have to think some of those guys on that roster are just going to be like, well, 
Kansas. We kind of own those guys. So let's go see what we can do. So, you know, maybe that works in KU's favor, even if it's 1%. Uh, you know, I don't think it's like an overwhelming advantage by any means, but it, it could help them out. Talking with Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World here. All right, let's forget the uh, hypotheticals here. Uh, what about Friday's game, KU defeating South Dakota? What about that game felt different to you than in years past? Uh, a couple of things, really. Number one, I, I thought the fact that, you, you know, they didn't turn it over, that's big. I mean, we, we've gotten used to KU beating themselves and, and, and kind of shooting itself in the foot and just taking, you know, tough, tough days or tough matchups and turning them in even into even harder matchups because they can't get out of their own way. And, and you know, that didn't happen. I mean, Jason Bean, I thought, was really, really good. Um, I know his numbers aren't spectacular or extraordinary or anything like, anything like that, but I think he was really good. And I think he was really good, period. But I think he was really good when you consider that that was his first game at this level, his first game for KU, his first game with that offensive line, his first game with that offensive coordinator, so on down the line. I mean, that, that, the guy looked poised. He looked uh, sure of himself. He looked calm. He looked confident. I mean, there's a lot to like about his debut and, and him being in that position going forward. So um, that's two things right there. And, and then, you know, I think the third thing is KU fans made plenty of, of note of this on Twitter and such after the game, but I think that, you know, this was that's exactly the kind of game that KU would lose in the last five to ten years, really. I mean, uh, you know, find a way to lose instead of find a way to win. You find a way to lose. And, and when they went down 14 to 10 with five minutes and change left, I mean, I think there were a lot of fans believing, uh-oh, this is – a disaster. There's no way they're going to pull this off. And then Bean did, and he marched him down the field. And, and, and so, you know, that doesn't change the entire outlook of the program. That doesn't, you know, snap your fingers and make sure things are fixed overnight. None of that happened, but it is a step in the right direction. And I thought Leipold was great on Monday talking about that. I mean, he said, you know, like, you can say it's an FCS win and all that, but you know, we're not going to apologize for that. We're not, we're not, we're not going to say anything other than we're thrilled that we came through when the game was on the line and we did what we had to do. And now you move forward and keep trying to get better. So those things were all positive signs for sure. I mean, um, I thought the defense looked great, but you take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because of, of the opponent. But still, I think again, you know, anytime you can stack these kinds of feel good things on top of each other, you never know what kind of confidence that can produce. You never know what that can mean um, for the next game or the next month or the next several months. You know, that, that, that kind of thing can, can build and can grow and can mean something to these guys. And, and I think they are confident. I think, it, it, you know, it, nobody's impressed or overly impressed or overjoyed about a three-point win over an FCS team, but I do think they're overjoyed that they – they found a way to win the game, and, and now you move on from there. So I, I think that, uh, you know, they still had some, some things that, that looked a little skittish. I mean, obviously their running game was rough. The, the line didn't look great as a, as a run-blocking line, but it did look good for the most part and got better 
um, as a pass blocking line. I thought that was in- encouraging. Um, and and you know, I mean, there were some fourth down calls and some some timeouts and some things like that. That but but you know, I think we talked about this last week. I, I, I'm going to chalk a lot of that up to the first game jitters, not necessarily to well, here's KU KUing again. You know, this is a whole different thing. And so, um, Leipold is one and zero, and and I think everybody would have taken that regardless of the final score going into it. You mentioned Jason Bean, uh, but was there a certain player that? I don't know, maybe you weren't expecting much from and or, or just didn't know a ton about and you thought they performed really well on either the offensive or defensive side of the ball? Uh, I'll give you two. Uh, and, I, you know, I I don't know that I didn't know much about them, but I would think a lot of fans probably didn't. This this is my job. It's what I've been doing a long time with this team and period. So, I, you know, I, I was pretty – pretty well versed on who was going to show up or who should show up and all of that stuff. But I think probably Mason Fairchild surprised a lot of people. I thought he looked really good. I mean, he, he made some incredibly tough catches, the one handed grab. Um, he ran good routes. I know they want him to block better um, when, when he's not running routes and, and that's something that he can improve on for sure. But obviously he made the big grab on fourth and 10 when they had to have it. Um, poised dude, you know, calm, confident, you know, he, he's a, he's a player that, that, that fits right in there with Jason Bean and just sort of that same demeanor. So that, that was encouraging for, for the offense for sure. And then, you know, I think Malcolm Lee was, was a monster, uh, on the D line. I think that guy is, um, I think that guy is absolutely, uh, a force. I mean, I think he, he plays with a motor he plays with intensity he's physical um he doesn't stop he keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and and he's tough and he's a good leader and and he leads by example and all those things so i thought he had a really good game as well i thought that whole d-line did um i i thought they were they were terrific and uh you know he wasn't the only one up there but but that's that's a big one for me And, and i'll tell you one more um i was down on the field for the first half I, I was able to. Uh, I, I wrote a story about Travis Goff, the new AD, and sort of his game day experience. Uh, I followed him around for several hours before the game, and and then was with him on the sideline up to halftime, and then met with him again after the game. And so I was on the field, and and usually I'm way up above in the press box. But uh, there was a play early, first quarter, deep shot. The uh, South Dakota quarterback overthrew his receiver, and I think it was Jeremy Webb who was covering and his Jeremy Webb's number nine and, and Malcolm Lee is, is uh, 99. And as Webb ran down the field, pretty much right in front of me, I just saw the nine and I saw this massive dude. And I thought to myself, what is Malcolm Lee doing <laughs> downfield in coverage like that? And then of course I look and realize it was just a single nine. And then I realized that Jeremy Webb, that, you know, transferred from Missouri state, and then I realized for the first time that Jeremy Webb is a monster. Uh, he is a big dude, looks the part, physical, um, and and he had a pretty good game too. But but that one really jumped out to me. That that was incredible. He he's a he's a he's tall, six four. I mean, much much bigger dude than I expected. It, it was announced this uh, <laughs> week that Maury Pesic Hickson is practicing for the team. Uh, with as much as the running game struggled, forty one carries, eighty two yards, two yards a pop. Belton Gardner really struggled in the running game as well. Now, I, I don't know how much of the blame you, you put on the offensive line or how much on the running back specifically or combination of both, but how much do you think Amori Pesic-Hickson can add to the running game? Yeah, a lot. I mean, you know, he showed flashes last year 
um, of what kind of back he can be. He's physical, but he can run. Um, he's fearless. He, he, you know, I remember him a couple of times last year trying to jump over guys, that type of back, um, which, you know, he needs to, he needs to obviously protect himself at all costs, but he's, he's got, you know, he's got the mindset of, of a guy that just doesn't want to go down and, and, you know, you're going to have to bring him down if, if you want to, to, to get him down and, and stop him from running downfield. So, you know, the, the more guys you can have like that, the better. I mean, I, he's son of military family. Um, you know, he, he, he's very disciplined very very focused um i i think he he has a chance for a breakout type of season and and so you know yeah i don't know that i don't know that gardner was was the problem on 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 friday night i think that the line did a did a pretty bad job of of giving him creases and opportunities and uh you know he just had nowhere to go he wasn't like he wasn't trying to take what was there there was just nothing there so um you know i i think they're gonna have to get better before Velton Gardner matters before Pestic Hickson matters before Devin Neal matters before any of it matters. But I, I did think that that Jason Bean showing his ability to get out and run was was important because that gives you a chance to maybe loosen it up a little bit too. And and you know he's talented. Bean's a, Bean's a talented dude. Um, you know he he's the kind of quarterback that I talked to him today and and uh, you know he. He says all the right things, and he says he would much rather stand in there and stay in the pocket and throw the ball down the field and and get chunk plays and and let his receivers do what they do. But, gosh, if there's trouble or it breaks down or he sees something that he likes, uh, pretty easily he can go get five, six yards um, just because his speed to the edge is so good. So I think he showed that a few times the other night. And, again, first game for him, and and I think they'll – They'll probably figure out a way to use that a little bit more and, and incorporate that into their game plan and what they do. And and uh, I think that's a real weapon, and I think that can help everybody out. Yeah, the guy that I'm really interested to see what the week one performance does moving forward is LJ Arnold. I mean, you think of the game of with the touchdown, the, the second one. But when you look at the snap count, he was only out there less than a quarter of the time. Now, when he was out there, he obviously made some big plays. So uh, I guess to me, he's the guy who has – Maybe, I don't know, maybe the highest potential of that receiver room because he is still so young. He's got the body to do it. And I, I think whatever progression you get there, if he can be a guy who is on the field most often by proving it to his coaches, I think that probably pretty substantially changes the way we look at this receiver room. Yeah, I would agree. They've, they've been a, a group that you look at and you kind of see, well, they got a bunch of good good receivers, but you, you haven't been able to find that, that number one, true number one guy. I, I do think that, that Kwame Lasseter has it in him to be that, but, um, but you know, he, he'd have to go out and play a perfect game and everything would kind of have to play perfectly into his favor for that to happen. And, and obviously that wasn't the case the other night for him. So I, I think if, if Arnold or anyone could, could step up and emerge as a true number one type of guy, then, I think that just makes the rest of the group even more dangerous because guys can fall into their roles. There can be a little bit more comfort knowing, okay, well, this is what I do. This is what you do. Uh, that's going to help Jason Bean as well, understanding, you know, that, that, that it's not just a, a collection of good, talented dudes that anybody could have a game at any time. I mean, he's going to develop a chance to have maybe a go-to receiver and, and feel that, that security blanket of having that. And maybe that is Arnold. Maybe, maybe we saw the very beginning uh, infant stages of that developing the other night. It obviously looked like it, and uh, 
you know, the, those were both big touchdown grabs. Obviously, the one to win the game is, doesn't get bigger than that. But um, even late in the first half, I mean, they needed a play there. And uh, I thought it was a terrific throw um, and, and a great route. And he was exactly where he needed to be and should be. And, and Bean put it right on the money. And, you know, that, that got him on the board and gave him a little bit of breathing room heading into halftime. And, and uh, you know, it still was a tight game. It still came all the way down to it. But um, I think the, both both of those moments were really big for this offense. And, and those were the two guys that came through each time. He is Matt Tate. You can check out all his work in the Lawrence Journal world at KUSports.com. Matt, thank you for mu- so much for the uh, time as always. And uh, talk to you next week. Sounds good, Derek. Thanks, man. You too. All right, that's Matt Tate. Check out his work, Lawrence Journal Worlds and KUSports.com. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. All right, it is a Tuesday, but it was a long weekend, so we're going to actually call this case of the Tuesdays. This is one of a few times all year long that you can have a case of the Tuesdays. First up, Patrick Cantlay won the FedEx Cup playoff. Patrick can not can't, can. He finished 21 under, one stroke ahead of John Rahm, who came on at the end of the tournament. I mean, he played great all weekend long to get in that situation, but the format kind of did him in. This format is actually super interesting. Basically, they whittle it down. They get down to the field at the very end for the last week of the FedEx Cup playoff, and based on the standings of how you've done over the course of the season, you get a head start on other people. So, person who has the most points is going to be 10 under start and so on down the list you know nine under eight under seven whatever technically john rom and kevin na would have had the top weekends at the event if that wasn't in place if it was just hey everybody's starting even this is just the small field of players who made it now let's go see who wins but because cantlay had a bit of a cushion he was able to come away with the win and it's funny because he is not a proponent of the format at all. And he even said so in the postgame. He said, I'm still not a proponent of this. But also in the back of his head, he was thinking, well, thank goodness for this because it wasn't just any win. Patrick Cantlay won $15 million. His career earnings coming into the event basically got doubled because he won this event. That's a pretty good uh, weekend of work for Patrick Cantlay. I mean, even John Rahm got $5 million finishing second place. And it was a really good year for Patrick Cantlay all the way through. Finished out really strong this season, obviously, but he wound up with four victories. He had seven top 10s. He had 17 top 25s in his 24 starts. And he actually missed the cut five times, which means he made the cut 19 times. So basically, whenever he did make the cut, he was basically automatic to be in the top 25. And that consistency helped him accrue a ton of points that... Helped put him in a good position and eventually get that edge over John Rahm and Kevin Na. It's weird how you view it, though, because you can say on one hand, well, John Rahm and Kevin Na were the best players, but if you're trying to view who is the best player over the course of the season, which is the goal of this FedEx Cup playoff, then that should matter. But should it? Because you have 
sports like the NBA or NHL or MLB that play dozens and dozens of games, but then at the end of the day, once you get into the playoffs, what you did over the long haul doesn't matter. You could have a team who goes 120 and 42 in the MLB regular season, but they don't get an advantage outside of home field advantage. So maybe that's what they should do. Start having home field advantage. You know, have everybody, once you make it to the FedEx Cup championship, where it's just the 30 people, everybody starts the same, but whoever is the highest point holder going into that, they get to pick what the course is. Like they can pick a putt-putt course. They can pick like their home course. You know, they can pick a little like par three course. I think that would be so interesting and to determine like the FedEx Cup playoff champion based on what course you pick for the home course. Do that. There's a good idea. That would never happen. Tyrod Taylor, or I'm sorry, Tyrod Taylor. We found out about this on HBO a couple years ago when Cleveland was on Hard Knocks. Apparently, everybody had been pronouncing his name. Everybody says Tyrod Taylor as Tyrod Taylor. But he had said that, no, it's Tyrod Taylor. Well, it's probably a little too late to change it. Should have spoke up earlier, but I'll try my best here. Tyrod Taylor has been named the Texans' starting quarterback for week one against Jacksonville. Now, Deshaun Watson is still on the 53-man roster, but he's expected to be a healthy scratch on game days for Houston. Obviously, Watson was or is facing 22 civil lawsuits for allegations of sexual assault and inappropriate behavior. He's also, I guess, still requesting a trade. I don't know what the update on that is, but he's not going to find out what the situation is for this until I believe February is when the deposition or when the he goes to court presumably or it goes to court I I don't know how the legal stuff works but it's not going to be resolved until February basically so this puts you in a weird situation for Houston who can either continue to start Deshaun Watson and we are in a place where you know, you're innocent till proven guilty, right? So by that mantra, well, he hasn't been proven guilty, so why not keep playing him? But the other side of this is risk management. And if Deshaun Watson is proven to be guilty and you started him for a full season, and again, this isn't basically, there's not going to be a resolution till February. Hypothetically, what if Deshaun Watson was your quarterback and won the MVP this year? And he started every game for you and took you to the playoffs or even took you to the Super Bowl. All of a sudden, a week later, he's going to jail. That wouldn't be great for Houston. So it's it's this kind of lose-lose situation for Houston that's either we bench him and we don't go with proven or guilty and, or I'm sorry, innocent till proven guilty, or we play him at risk of it being a huge problem in us looking like absolute D-bags. It's a lose-lose. But it sounds like he's not expected to play for Houston all season long, despite the fact that he's been restricted or not restricted from taking part in team activities. He's been there for practices, and he hasn't been restricted from playing in NFL games. Just an impossible gambit for Houston to have to deal with. The key now is just sticking with your guns. Whatever you decided there, stick with it the rest of the way, right? Because if Houston starts 0-5, or 0-7, or 2-9, don't all of a sudden change up and go, you know what, we were doing the right thing, but, man, we really need to win some games. We better start Deshaun Watson. 
Or on the flip side of that, if you were going to start him, at that point, you might as well just hold through and say, no, we're trusting in the innocent until proven guilty thing. Whatever path you chose, which I think this is the right path to be clear, you need to stay on that path the whole way through. One thing I will say, and, you know, with Terod Taylor and the rest of this Houston team, like this is going to be one of the favorites to have one of the top picks in the NFL draft. I actually do think, like, Terod Taylor, you know, he was always one of the best backups, or I don't think he was, like, ever one of the worst starters. Like, when he was at the Bills, he took him to the playoffs. Is he going to be a top half of the league starter? No. But is he going to be the worst starter in the NFL this season? No, probably not. But still, I, I feel like the Texans should sign Cam Newton. He's a free agent. You always hear about Cam Newton being this, you know, really powerful guy in the locker room that can help galvanize the team. And they could probably use that. And with Cam Newton, you're going to be able to run some similar plays you do with Deshaun Watson as far as running the quarterback. I think Cam Newton's just better than Terod Taylor. But I don't know. Maybe the Texans are viewing this as, hey, we don't mind tanking this year and trying to get the top quarterback in the draft. The problem with that is there's no clear-cut guy right now. Like, is it Sam Howell? Is it Spencer Rattler? I don't know. But maybe that's the idea, and they don't want to get Cam Newton because they want to bottom out here and get a better draft pick. But if you are trying to win games, that would make a ton of sense to me. Weston McKinney, who is one of the U.S. men's national team's best young players, he was suspended away from the team ahead of their World Cup qualifying match. U.S. is playing in these World Cup qualifiers, played Canada over the weekend. They ended up only getting a draw, one-to-one. Canada supposedly has, like, one of their best, I don't know, teams in their nation's history. I, I don't know enough to support that, but for the U.S., these are obviously vitally important games. You miss out on the last World Cup and trying to get back to the World Cup in Qatar. And they could definitely use him. He is one of the best players on the team. He is playing in Juventus, which is like the team in Italy. Show you how good he is. He's not just, you know, on some smaller club or something. This is one of your best young players. But they had to send him home. And the reason why, in addition to being suspended, was that he violated team COVID protocols. I don't know what the protocols are, but we've seen this in sports. We saw this in with Cleveland a season ago. I believe it was Zach Plezak who violated team COVID protocols, went out with friends at a bar in the middle of the season, and that rubbed the locker room the long, wrong way. They had a guy on their team, Carlos Carrasco, who had finished off cancer treatments and was maybe more susceptible to COVID, and he violated team rules. So I don't know what the team rules are for the U.S., but I'm sure it was just something as simple as like, hey, stay in your hotel room. Like you can hang out with each other or I don't know if it had to do with vaccination or anything, but he violated it and got sent home. And that cost the U.S. That cost him. This isn't the first time, not a first time offender for Weston McKinney. Uh, back in April, he was suspended by Juventus after he was found to have hosted a party that included some teammates on Juventus. He was also fined by the police. I guess that can happen in Italy if you gather too many people, or I don't know if this is still going on. You can get fined by the police. Could you imagine that? Like, if all these, like, mandates with COVID that we have going on in the U.S., like, people get mad about it and you have people screaming about, oh, I'm never going to wear a mask again. Well, just be glad, you know, because you could get fined by the police in some other countries for 
having too big of a gathering. So just be glad that's not happening. Uh, but yeah, Team USA sends back Weston McKinney to Juventus. And honestly, given that pr- previous pass, like, does he even care? I don't know. Probably not. But it cost US. I, I don't know. It's hard to say, like, would he have been the difference? Would they have beaten Canada? But he is one of the best players on the team. And you could have really used that win. Last thing, update on Puka Williams. If you remember, he was an undrafted free agent, signed with the Bengals. Didn't make the Bengals' 53-man roster, but he did make the practice squad. And that might not sound like a huge win. might sound a bit bleak. But think about this. For, for, from a Bengals' perspective, you have this guy who you picked up as an undrafted free agent, and he didn't play a single preseason game because he had injury. And yet you still let him on to the practice squad. That shows you that they are kind of, I don't know, committed might not be the right word, but they're definitely interested in Puka Williams. Undrafted guy, didn't play a preseason game. They still signed to the practice squad over guys who did both of those things. Uh, The update is that he's going to be wearing number 12, but more importantly, the update for Puka Williams, he's now listed as a wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals. That's interesting. But it kind of makes sense, right? You have this smaller, undersized running back who's shifty in the open field. Maybe you can get him out more in the open field in the slot or on bubble screens and make him miss. And maybe he can't take the full load of being a running back. But I'd imagine he's going to be used, even if he is listed as a receiver, probably in that dual-dimensional role. Like, we've seen guys with Percy Harvin or Corderell Patterson right now that you're kind of used in a little bit of both ways. You're not like a mainstay on the field, but you help give versatility to the offense. And honestly, I can't wait for Puka Williams to succeed as a slot receiver in the NFL after how underused he was at KU as a receiving running back. He wound up with 534 receiving yards across 26 games. That's 534 receiving yards across two and a half seasons for the best athlete on the field for KU, for a guy who was dominant in the open field. And they just basically said, yeah, we might use him to catch two passes a game. That sounds about proficient. And now, this NFL franchise, after spending, I don't know, a month and a half with him, two months with him, not even drafting him, not even seeing him play in a preseason game, have basically said, no, you're good enough to play receiver in the NFL. Unbelievable. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us in about 20 minutes. Coming up next, let's hear what Lance Leipold had to say after KU's victory over South Dakota. Bit of a shaky week if you're just looking at what was supposed to happen in terms of just like point spreads for the Big 12 in week one, but overall pretty good for the conference as well. Texas beats the top 25 team. Kansas State beats down on Stanford. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. All right, so Kevin, quick game to open up our segment today, and I guess I'll call this game Scales. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your worry level for Oklahoma scathing by Tulane? You know, it, it's not uh, it's not that high. I, I would say it's probably about 2 or, or 3. I think Derek, when you when you look at the circumstances behind the game, when you look at the fact it was moved at the last minute, uh, 
you know, the, the way that Oklahoma was able to build a lead and, and kind of let Tulane back into it a little bit, it, it was a sloppy first performance. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. At the same time, you know, Oklahoma gets a game to polish up this week. They get Nebraska here coming up pretty soon, and, you know, Nebraska hasn't exactly looked great. And, and so sort of unlike last year, where there wasn't really a non-conference season and Oklahoma started off sloppily and and that led to losses to to Kansas State and Iowa State. I I think Oklahoma is going to have every chance to, uh, every chance to turn that thing around and get back to, uh, to better footing. Yeah. The fighting Willie Fritz's can not be (laughs) taken lightly. Uh, What about the worry level for Iowa State? What's the scale of one to 10 there after they barely beat Northern Iowa? It's zero, and it's funny because I think, you know, those of us who have followed the Big 12 a while, and Derek, obviously, you're included in this, this is something Iowa State does every year. Yeah, you know, is especially to Northern open. Iowa. Especially Northern Iowa, you know, there have been a few other games in there as well where they haven't really shown up as well, and and have really been tested in that opener. Obviously, last year they got just destroyed by Louisiana and still came back and, and reached the Big 12 title game and, and threw a real scare into Oklahoma in, in the Big 12 title game. And so Northern Iowa, I think, you know, is one of those programs where they get so up for that game and so excited for that game it's going to be really tough for, for Iowa State to come out of a game like that looking good in the first place. And so I wasn't uh, I wasn't too worried, really, that Iowa State defense did what it needed to do. Yes, it was a close game, but we've seen this from Iowa State before and, and just kind of onward and upward for those guys. Yeah, the, the thing with Iowa State, like, it's not a concern for me at all about the Northern Iowa results specifically, but I, I'm a little worried under the – point of oh no this is another year where they are doing what you just alluded to which is maybe struggling a little bit more early and then if they find it they usually find it in October and Matt Campbell I think he only has like one loss in the last three years in October Um, but the issue is at least from the you know topic of college football playoff contender if we're talking big 12 it doesn't matter but they play Iowa this week and Iowa looked very very good and if they are going to be a college football playoff contender and I mean from the big 12's perspective it would go a long way if Iowa State beats Iowa for the, you know, when the committee's looking at, will Oklahoma beat Iowa State, who beat Iowa, and we're trying to decide between Oklahoma and Ohio State or whatever it is. I would be a little bit worried for Iowa State taking on Iowa this week. Well, I'm worried for Iowa State anytime they play Iowa, <laughs> and I think that that's because of their lack of recent success there. You know, it feels like Matt Campbell has been in Ames forever now, and he has been there for quite a while. And I don't know if it's something that everybody realizes that Matt Campbell hasn't beaten Iowa before. The last victory that Iowa State had over Iowa came under Paul Rhodes in 2014. And so I don't necessarily link the the Northern Iowa result to why that game is scary for Iowa State. I think to me – it's a game that has been close lately. Iowa State has has had its chances in that game to to come out with a win, and yet it's one of those things that I think we've seen in the past. And you can look at when Kansas had its really, really, really long streak of losing to Nebraska. 
when it would come down to the end of those games, Nebraska knew it was going to win, and Kansas was hoping it would win in the games that were close. And and there were a few of them. You know, June Henley almost led Kansas to a win one year. I think 1999 was really close. 2004 and 2006 were really close. KU did finally break through in 2005, but I think it's something similar in that rivalry potentially in terms of mental block where if it's a close game and we're at the end, Iowa, all it's really known and all those players have really known it is beating Iowa State. And on the flip side of that, all those Iowa State players, you know, they may be a lot more confident based on what they did last year when they didn't play Iowa, ironically enough. But at the same time, I do think in a close game, Iowa's the team that's going to kind of feel like, okay, this is, this is a game that we will win because we win. This is what we do, and Iowa State is going to need that little bit of something extra to push past that wall. Talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports here. All right, last one on this game of scales. Worry level for Oklahoma State, who beat Missouri State by just seven. I'm not too worried. I'm a little bit worried because I don't think Missouri State's very good, and that's that's part of my worry there. I think – one of the things that that stands out there is obviously Spencer Sanders didn't play. The thing that makes you worry a little bit, Derek, is the fact that if Oklahoma State is going to reach their goals in the Big 12, if they're going to be a program that's going to be that dark horse, maybe slip into the Big 12 title game, then you shouldn't need Spencer Sanders to beat Missouri State by more than a touchdown. And so – out of those three, I, I would give Oklahoma State maybe a five or a six on the worry meter a little bit. I know it's week one. I know crazy things happen. I know your starting quarterback couldn't play, I believe, because of COVID protocols, if I remember right. But at the same time, I do think that that's maybe a little bit more worrisome than, than the other two in terms of where Oklahoma State wants to get this year and, and what they're showing early on. All right, who do you think on the more impressive side of things as opposed to maybe playing down to your competition, who do you think had the most impressive week one performance among Big 12 teams? I thought it was Texas. Kansas State was really impressive against Stanford and and really handled that game well, but I also thought that Stanford was poor at quarterback early on especially and, and maybe missed some things that would have made that a little bit different game. But Louisiana, Derek, really impressed me on the hoof again. You know, in terms of looking at Louisiana and feeling like you're not looking at a non-Power 5 school, you know, they look like they've got the cover corners that you want, the defensive linemen that you would want, and they look generally like a top 25 team physically. And so I was pretty impressed with Louisiana. And so for Texas to come out, and just sort of coolly and collectively and looking very well coached, Derek, to come out and win the way that Texas did was a pretty resounding statement. And I know that everybody is going to look at Texas and roll their eyes and say, well, my gosh, how many Texas is back moments have we had <laughs> you know, over the, over the last decade? And it's been a lot of them, and Texas hasn't consistently been back. But in terms of what you wanted to see in week one and, and who was going to come out looking the best, 
I don't know that there's that much of a debate that the team that really looked the best, especially compared to the competition, was Texas over Louisiana. Yeah, they were they were really impressive. I, I think I was most impressed in that game with Hudson Card. Just I mean, sure. Bajon Robinson is just a freak of nature, but um, Hudson Card just not knowing what you were going to get from a young freshman quarterback. I thought that Texas Tech was impressive too in coming from behind on Houston. I thought Houston might have won that game coming into things ahead of time, so I thought that was impressive for them. Uh, what do you think about you know some of the the middle tier with Tech, Kansas State, West Virginia, obviously losing. Does anything that happened this past week kind of change the way you view the Big Twelve? No, not a ton. I, I think that a lot of the a lot of places where teams struggled, you maybe expected a little bit. I, I did think Texas Tech was a little more impressive than I thought they would be after that rough start against Houston. You know, that was uh that was not the way you want to come out in a game like that, but certainly they responded and adjusted really well. I'm interested to see how that goes. The thing that I'm fascinated to watch that I don't think anybody is is really talking about or not talking enough about, Derek, is Kansas State. Like I said, I'm interested to see how they do with a team that can really throw the ball because I'm not sure the pass rush is quite what it has been and I'm interested in how those defensive backs hold up. And a game that not a lot of people are circling that's coming out is Nevada. And Nevada can really throw the ball. And Carson Strong is a really, really good quarterback. As in, he's probably a top 10 quarterback in the country. May even be better than that. You look at their wide receivers, too. You know, it's an excellent group. And so I think as impressed as I was by Kansas State, and as tempting as it would be to, to take that Stanford result and say, oh, K-State is a no-doubt eight- or nine-win team, I think for me the, the money game or the game that I'm going to want to watch is that Nevada game to see how Nevada fares against, uh, against that Kansas State defense. All right, the one team we haven't mentioned yet is Kansas. Based on what you saw in week one with having to come from behind, beating South Dakota, did you come away thinking KU – has a better chance, worse chance, or the same chance of getting a Big 12 victory? You know, it's probably about the same. I think there were certain things that, and, you know, I was at the game on Friday, and there were certain things that I think people maybe got a little bit upset about that I quite frankly expected to happen. I'm not pretending to be Nostradamus or anything like that. But when you're teaching wide zone and what, and everything that that entails, there's going to take some time for your offensive line to mesh. And I don't think people also factored in the fact that, that Kansas has been fairly, you know, they've had some injuries up front. You know, when you look at Hughes would potentially be their starter at right guard. And Ford, you know, missed some time, and it was also working at tackle. And so Colin Grunhard is working at right guard, but he's doing it with a sprained ankle himself. And I think when you go back and rewatch the game, Derek, you see that maybe things weren't as far off as they initially appeared. You know, maybe it was something that was blown up because you have somebody who's, you know, really injured in that spot and, and maybe isn't able to play up to his ability 100%. I thought there were maybe some lanes there that Belton Gardner didn't quite hit or didn't quite take advantage of. And so 
I thought Lance Leipold put it perfectly when he said, you know, everybody could stand to be a little bit better. And I think that comes across on tape. But I think the other thing that comes across is maybe as bad as it looked, especially when they were trying to run the ball, Derek, maybe they weren't as far off from being able to have a solid running performance as what people would think after watching it the first time. Do you think that what the defense was able to do, uh, specifically that, that front with Malcolm Lee and Kyron Johnson, do you think that can translate over to some of these FBS opponents that KU will be playing here? Yeah, I think the front was really good. One of the things that they have there that they haven't had there is depth. You know, you look at a guy like Sam Burt, I thought was playing really well. He leaves with the injury, and it's kind of next man up in that defensive tackle group. You know, we didn't really see Steven Parker in that defensive end group, you know, because he had missed a bunch of time in camp. He's somebody that's probably going to factor in at some point, you know, in the next few weeks in conference season, wherever. And so when you look at that, I think there's a much better depth and quality, uh, depth of quality, I would say, on that defensive line. The other thing that's going to be really fun to watch, I think, Derek, is when you look at that defensive backfield, there are so many young guys there, right? I mean, we saw great stuff from O.J. Burroughs, made some big plays. Jason Gilliam was out there. At one point, they had two true freshman safeties, and I believe Jacoby Bryant was out there as a, as a former gray shirt, but also another true freshman. And so as those guys grow, as they get more time, you know, as Jeremy Webb gets – gets more time in the system and more time with the team after transferring in as all of those things sort of kick in. I think there's a a chance that they could be pretty good on the back end as well as those guys continue to develop and give Kansas a little bit more of a two deep in the secondary than they've had in the past as well. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work 24 seven sports.com. Kevin, thank you so much for the time and talk to you next week. All right. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty. Check him out, 247sports.com. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Two hours down, one to go. Five o'clock hour, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson with you. We got another KU football game coming at you Friday against Coastal Carolina. Pre-game starts at five o'clock right here on KLWN with... Kickoff set for 6.30 down in Myrtle Beach. That would be a good spot to visit, like, a if you if you wanted to go on the road for a KU football road game. Myrtle Beach would be a good one just because you're on the beach. It's supposedly a big, like, party town. Probably a fun trip to head on out there. Maybe you are, but if not, you can listen to it on the radio right here on KLWN. That is just one of my many thoughts. Let's get to a segment that we're debuting now. It's called Derek's Deep Thoughts. We're going to do it on the KU football team after their first game, KU football edition. By the way, Amori Pesek-Hickson practicing this week. That's very good news for KU football at the running back position and maybe more of a reason why. My first thought, Velton Gardner doesn't really seem to fit in with what the offense is doing. I don't know. Maybe it's just one bad game and I'm overthinking this. But Gardner just didn't seem to want to turn up the field. It seemed like he was just trying to run it horizontally and not get up vertically. And I get it. Like There's a certain standpoint of you have to get it horizontally in the wide zone. You're stretching things out wide. But you almost need to work at an angle. You almost need to 
find it once you do get to the outside. You have to find the area when you do cut up, then do eventually cut up vertically. And it just didn't seem like that cut was being made by Velton Gardner. I'll say this. It's it's very tough for me to tell whether what we saw on Friday is more on the backs, if it's more on the offensive line, or if it's a combination, which honestly is probably the case. We also didn't see Devin Neal, and Tory Lachlan didn't do much running either, but Lachlan did have more success than Velton Gardner. And, I mean, who would have thought that Tory Lachlan would have been the big play back? If, if you told me Gardner got usurped, I would have thought Devin Neal. But he played so sparingly. With no one able to run the ball, outside of, I guess, Jason being scrambling, it, it came down to what else are you going to do? And Lachlan had a few pass block pickups. Velton Gardner, meanwhile, graded as a 27 on pro football focus as a pass blocker. So with nobody running the ball, then all of a sudden it does become somebody else's job. And that was the case for Tory Lachlan down the stretch. We'll see if that leads to more playing time for him. But now that Pesek Hickson is back at practice, I'm kind of expecting him to become the number one running back based on the performance we saw from Velton Gardner last week, based on the performance we just didn't see in the running game in total for KU and based on what we saw from Velt or from Maury Pesic Hickson to end the season last year, I, I feel like he is going to fit this offense very well. He's kind of that slashing one cut back. He does have some power to him with nice size. I think he is going to be able to unlock the zone scheme maybe a little bit better than what you saw week one with Velton Gardner. Thought number two, one thing that will help any of the backs, whoever it is, is that the offensive line has to play better for KU. And actually, I'll say this, they graded out pretty well in pass blocking. So, this more so rings true with run blocking. KU graded out as a 71 and a half as a team in pass blocking. That's pretty darn good, especially compared to where you were last year in the 40s. Bryce Cabledu was over an 80 grade, which is fantastic. Uh Lopetti, Bostic, Nowitzki and Clark were all over 70 in pass blocking grades, which again, just to give you like the scale of pro football focus, just from looking like at the leaderboards across the country, if you get a 90 grade in something, you're going to be like at the top of the country or at least right near the top in terms of your grade. You get an 80, you're going to be like an all-conference level player. You get in a 70, that's like a solid good player. You get in, in that 65 range that seems to be about average. 60 is like kind of teetering on average, below average in the 50s is definitely below average, and then under 50s is like, uh-oh, there's there's a problem here. All above 70 for those guys. Even Michael Ford was right there. He's at a 68 pass block grade. And those numbers will play. Does remain to be seen how that translates to FBS opponents. And I don't think South Dakota's defensive line was anything to ring home about. Better to have that happen than the alternative, which was struggling in that game. So pass blocking, good. That alternative was with pass blocking or with run blocking. Uh, the run blocking was a problem. 44.9 was the grade for KU in run blocking on Pro Football Focus. And I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know when you saw that game and how KU wasn't able to run the ball and wasn't able to get a surge at the line of scrimmage. But did you also know that run blocking grade ranked 120th in the country among 130 teams? And for a team who wants that to be their staple, the run game, Cannot happen for you to be successful. Now, the top four graded run blockers for KU were non-offensive linemen. We, went, we mentioned this last year. There's a bunch of receivers. 
You know, that's a good sign that the receivers are committed to blocking, but that's not a great sign for your offensive line. That's the case again in this past game. Uh, Michael Ford and Colin Grunard. Grunard struggled in pass blocking, but he was actually one of the best run blockers. But still, neither Ford or Grunard surpassed a 60 run blocking grade. And those were the top guys for you in run blocking. Malik Clark and Mike Nowitzki, they struggled the most in that regard. And Mike Nowitzki is the guy who you felt like you have the most confidence in on the offensive line. And, you know, this isn't something as simple to say, oh, well, now you're at Kansas, you're playing better opponents, you're playing Oklahoma now, you didn't have to play them at Buffalo, so of course the grade's going to go down. No, you play South Dakota, who, you know, that still would have been, you would think, a very winnable game for Buffalo, right? Like, that would have been one of their, quote-unquote, easier games at Buffalo, too. So that doesn't make sense. I, I think you just chalk that up as maybe a bad game for Mike Nowitzki. Maybe you just chalk it up as still trying to establish chemistry with the rest of the offensive line, since that is such a tight-knit unit. But not worried about that. The Malik Clark one... You'd like to see more gains forward after he did move inside from the tackle position to the guard position, and that needs to get better. But overall, offensive line in run blocking was not very good. And I believe in the staff. I believe in Scott Fuchs. I, I think they are going to get it better. The question is how much, and like I said in the open, that to me determines how many wins this team is going to wind up with. All right, thought number three. Kyron Johnson is going to be an all-Big 12 defensive end for KU this season. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a cop-out here, and when I say all-Big 12 defensive end, I don't necessarily mean first-team all-Big 12. might even be referring to all-Big 12 honorable mention. But, I mean, how often does KU get honorable mention all-Big 12 players? It's usually a couple a season, right? like maybe two, three guys a year. So, I mean, it's something, and I still wouldn't be surprised if he does earn his way onto like the second team. He had an 89.8 defensive grade. That was the best on the team. That included a grade over 90 as a pass rusher. I mean, he had the sack. He had a couple other times where it felt like he just burned through his tackle who was blocking him on the outside. But then, unfortunately for him, Carson Camp, the quarterback for South Dakota, just kind of stepped up or scrambled away to the opposite side right when he was about to get where he initially was. And there might not have been pressure in those other spots to stop Carson Camp or he might have just been able to elude it and, and turned it in into an incompletion, but he was really winning his battles on the outside, and he was really good in that game, even better than the stats would show, which the stats were already pretty good as well. I, I, like I said, I don't know if it'll be a first-team All-Big 12, but if he stays healthy, I'll honestly be surprised if he doesn't at least get an honorable mention All-Big 12 pick, and I think he could contend for maybe that first or second team. All right, thought number four, I believe. I've already lost count. I think we're on four. I don't know. Uh L.J. Arnold, Mason Fairchild, they're going to be two big targets in the passing game that are going to have a big impact the rest of the year. The beauty of Arnold is that he's so young, too, that, you know, assuming that he stays in the program, obviously you never know anymore if somebody has their eyes on transferring or whatnot, but you could be going into next year saying, yep, we know who our guy is with L.J. Arnold, and now he's just still just a sophomore, still has more time. And we've had guests on the show who have talked about how does KU have that like true Big 12 number one receiver? Like Kwame Lasseter, good receiver, but is he more of on a Big 12 team like a number two or number three? I think LJ Arnold has that ability to be that number one Big 12 wide receiver. I mean, you look at the potential he brought out of high school, you look at the frame, you look at the body. He has the potential to be that guy for you that you can say, yeah, he's our number one. And the next step for him is just being an every play guy. 
Think about this. With as much as he impacted the game, he had those two touchdown grabs, including the uh, game winner. LJ Arnold only played 15 snaps on offense. KU ran 68 snaps as a team on offense. He played less than a quarter of those. I'd imagine he's going to get more now, right? It's a lot tougher to keep him off the field, but he has to gain his coach's trust more. He has to produce better in practice or maybe be a better run blocker. I don't know. He had good run blocking grades last year. Didn't have great run blocking grades in this one, but again, less snaps, smaller sample size, whatever it is to see that increase, which I'd imagine that performance definitely helps. And if he can slowly see that increase, I think at least from the passing game, you view him as saying, yeah, he probably is our number one or he has the prototype of being a number one. And in the end, Arnold actually wound up with the best offensive grade and best overall pass grade, both above 80 for the KU offense. Now, second in the passing regard was Mason Fairchild, who was over 80 in the passing game as well. And I view him in a similar way. You're talking about a big body receiver, basically, who, yes, he's a tight end, but with questions about how good the receiver room can be when you have 13 of 16 receivers on the roster who are underclassmen, who you have questions about, you know, is it going to take another year or two for you to be Big 12 ready? You're going to need other guys to step up, like running backs or tight ends in the passing game. And Mason Fairchild did just that. Ended up with a sports center top 10 play, the one-handed catch on the sideline. Overall, just had a really good receiving game for them. And I think you view Mason Fairchild and say, and really the whole tight end group, because Trevor Cardell, I know he had the one route, which, you know, I don't know if that was Jason Bean, Jason Bean's fault or uh, Trevor Cardell's faults or just good defense or, or what, but I think Trevor Cardell will have an impact on this offense, but I, I definitely think that Mason Fairchild and LJ Arnold did establish that, yeah, we're going to be two of the, you know, it's not going to be they're going to be the number one guy each and every game, but I think you go into every game saying that between LJ Arnold, Mason Fairchild, Kwame Laster, and then maybe if you want to throw in like Trevor Wilson, those are going to be our like our four guys who rotate between being the top receiver for that given game. All right, thought number five. On the linebackers and corners is that I don't really have a thought. So number five is a thought on not having a thought or not having a thought on a thought. Not sure which way that would go. Uh, the corners look talented for KU. You could tell at different times, playing in press coverage, playing in man-to-man, breaking up certain passes, but you can definitely tell they're very inexperienced. There were a couple times South Dakota went for uh, a couple deep balls, and there was one especially where South Dakota just missed it. And, you know, on one hand, like going deep is a risk because it's the hardest pass to complete in theory for a quarterback because it's so far down the field. So, you know, you could get burnt three times by a receiver deep, but he only catches one for a touchdown, right? Just because it's harder to complete that pass. But that said, especially in college football, that said, that does scare you a little bit. And there is some really nice potential. You know, like Jacoby Bryant didn't grade out well, but I think there's still nice potential there. I was really impressed with what O.J. Burroughs did, and he was a guy that I was kind of circling coming into the game after just being out in the area for seeing open practice or whatever it was, that he was a guy I was really interested to see what he could do, just kind of a gamer and a little undersized for safety, but just always seemed to be around the ball. Well, he made some huge plays in that game against South Dakota. I was really impressed with him. But overall, yeah, corners, I'm not sure what to come away with it as because it's like, yeah, definitely talent, but they're inexperienced, and that's the exact same thought I was having before the season started. Linebackers struggled so much last year. They appear to be a bit better, but they still weren't great on Friday, and it remains a mystery to me what you're going to get overall from that unit. 
So same questions I had before the season started for the linebacking group. Um, special teams. This is thought number six for me here. Pleased with the special teams, what they look like. No big plays for South Dakota on special teams. KU had a couple big plays on their special teams. I'm actually going to start keeping track of what I consider big plays or big negative plays for special teams this year. It's it's not going to be you know an exact science. It's not going to be about KU did this many well and the opposition did this many well. It's just going to be internally about KU making big special teams plays or bad ones. Right? You give up a kickoff return touchdown, that's a bad one. If they cough and corner punt you inside the five, that's not a bad one on you. That's just a good one for them. But if you go out and get a kick return touchdown, that's a good one for you. And so this is a unit that I've talked about kind of ad nauseum about the idea that, you know, this is a unit that could and should see overwhelming improvement this year. You've been a team who hasn't finished in the top 85 in special teams efficiency in a decade. And Buffalo was 41st last year. And, like, you look at the top of the leaderboards, these aren't teams that are necessarily the most talented in the world. You can improve special teams by commitment to the program, by playing some starters in there, by getting a message across, by good special teams coaching. And so I don't think there's any excuse. I'm not saying the KU, you know, should finish in the top 20 or anything, but that there should be at least improvement, right? Get from being one of these special teams units that's been really bad over the last decade to being one that's just average, right? And that would be a huge improvement for you. And I think unlike the offense and the defense, you can have overwhelming improvement, right? You might be able to improve by five, six points, by a touchdown on offense or defense. But you can't go from being one of the worst offenses to all of a sudden now you're top three in the Big 12. You could do that in special teams, hypothetically. So I'm going to keep track of this all season long. This will just be a very simple way of looking at it. Special teams plays can kind of turn the game, and they can also spark many things. So by my count, KU had two big-time special plays, uh, special teams plays, so that's a plus two. Uh, they had the 51-yard punt that angled out of bounds at the three-yard line in the second quarter, and that set up getting a stop, which then gave your offense a short field, and you went down and scored before the halftime break. So that's a plus one. Get up to a plus two. Kenny Logan had that 83-yard kick return, and KU didn't end up scoring. They went for fourth down, and they didn't get it, but it's still a big-time special teams play, so you're plus two there. Now, as far as, I guess, I don't even know what I want to call these, like negative special teams plays or brain fart special teams plays, KU had none of them, right? I mean, there were some, I don't know, there, there was nothing that South Dakota did on special teams. They didn't have, like, a huge kickoff return or they didn't have a, you know, gigantic punt loss for KU where they muffed a punt or they lost 10 yards on a punt return or something. That didn't happen. And, in fact, I mean, KU didn't, if KU blocked it, I would put it in the big-time special teams play. South Dakota just missed it. I could have put that in the big time, but that was another edge that your special teams had over theirs with them missing a field goal. So you're a plus two in big plays for and against on special teams in week one and now on the season, in my opinion. So we'll, I'll be interested to kind of keep track of that and how that goes throughout the season. Uh, but you could, I mean, if you wanted, you could argue KU having near 30-yard punts a few times was a negative, and I'm sure that's something that needs to be corrected, but those won't necessarily kill you depending on the situation, right? I mean, if if you're punting from your own five and it's a 30-yard punt, like, yeah, that's that's definitely a problem, but that didn't happen, and, you know, all of those short 30-yard punts were fair caught and had no return, so you didn't lose even more yards on the return. I mean, you could probably also argue any field goal that 
was made by Kansas, which um, they made one and made two PATs. You could argue that should be in the good column. But like I said, in grading this over the course of the season, I'm going to try to reserve these for the big plays and the bad ones. And that's just like a medium play, right? You should make 30 yarders, which that field goal for KU is a 30 yarder. If you make a 48 yarder, then I might uh, add that in there. So it's going to be very subjective, but we'll monitor that as the season goes on. But solid first week for the special teams. All right, thought number seven and final thought for Derek Steep Thoughts, KU Football Edition. I could not care less about field storming arguments, like, at all. I, I don't care about people saying, how is, how, you know, KU football, this is KU football, and any win should be celebrated, and good for students for actually caring. Okay, I don't care about people making fun of it either. It's just not something I want to put any effort into caring about, but here I am talking about it. I just view it as a waste of time to even do so, but I guess I'm a hypocrite right now. Like I said, I'm not going to go analyze how Brad executed his beer pong game or how Stephanie did in terms of dancing at her big house party. And I'm not going to analyze how a bunch of drunk college kids partied on a football field after KU won a game against an FCS team. I, I don't care. I could care less. That is Derek's deep thoughts. KU football edition. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Let's let you hear some more player audio after this timeout from the postgame of KU defeating South Dakota on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. 